Welcome to Mission Daily. On today's episode, Chad sits down with Doug Merritt, CEO of Splunk, the leading platform for operational intelligence. Splunk works with companies to collect, analyze, and act upon the data generated by the business to help drive business results. Splunk is currently solving a lot of problems. With a roster of 17,000 customers and counting, Doug's on track to achieve his personal goal of working at a company with a purpose for the rest of his life. But like many successful leaders, Doug's path did not lead him straight here. In fact, his road to Splunk was winding and he developed several core principles along the way. In this episode, Chad and Doug sit down to discuss dark data, how to collect it, and why it's the goldmine waiting to be struck by companies of the future. When you think about humans and generating data, uh, what are some early examples you like to cite uh, when humans started to generate large amounts of data? The physical world around us, the biological world, moves at the speed of genetic mutation, which is over millions and billions of years is very, very effective, but it has a natural cadence to it. And my borrowed views from <laughs> reading many, many different works are that language was really the first singularity that you framed that brilliantly. And it really has turned out to be a, a brilliant way for human beings to have a super rapid genetic-like set of mutations that only are gated by the speed of story. Um, so rather than having the DNA alter to give you the power to either sense danger or uh, have adaptive capabilities on poisonous or dangerous elements, we can just hear, as long as we all understand spoken word and, um, and the language, we just can almost be gifted that genetic history through stories. And that's so exciting because if we think about the early days in the human evolutionary story, we had 150 people tribes or something along those lines. And with 150 people, you have a collection of data and you have a pool of data where there might be dark data, there might be insights, but that pool pales in comparison to the global pool of data that we have now. How do we get here to so much data? When you go through the uh, first learning to to speak and language and then write so that you can actually have some type of historical record and a more effective way of communicating to the advent of numbers and accounting and then a whole series of systems to help with societal organizational progress. And it just feels like, for, to me, like a constant opening of the aperture of more and more data and information. And obviously for us in the 2019 era, we've seen an explosion over the past 20, 30, 40, 50 years, however long we've been on this earth, where we've just leveraged that whole series of innovation that now has led to this digitization revolution, where every object around us increasingly is being able to speak, to tell these stories, which creates amazing opportunity and huge challenge, because what do you do with billions, tens of billions, trillions of of items that are all talking at once. We've felt information overload in the past. What's it like now? It's getting to a, a crazy level. It's definitely uh, accelerating. However, it seems like there is some hope because if we look at the dark data that's being generated right now, it compromises around 54% of total data or so. What is dark data and what portion of overall big data do you think it compromises? We did a survey, a study uh, that we helped sponsor at Splunk um, just to help get perspective from different people that are in the data in industry overall around data and, and how much they have access to and how much they don't. And the dark data is data that they understand likely exists, but they have no access to. It Maybe it just 
falls on the floor and never gets collected. A network device is spooling out data in the form of logs, but no one ever collects it, and it just eventually runs out of memory and disappears and is expunged. Maybe it's in siloed uh, areas where people don't have access to it or have even forgotten that it, that it lives. But estimates in this survey came back that over 50% of the data that is swirling around and could be tapped is unknown and not being tapped, which the respondents felt was a lost opportunity. Could you paint a picture of how big this lost opportunity is? Because I think many people hear that, they hear 54% of their data and they think work. It's not necessarily as much work as they might think to start getting benefits from that data. Any examples that you like to cite there? I'll cite my favorite one, which is Splunk, (laughs) because I think we're a great example of a company that our two core technical founders turned to what everyone else would assume was just garbage, dark data, data that no one would ever care about collecting, and there likely was no value in, which started out as logs. Logs are just a mechanism in computing for different devices or programmers to spool whatever they think is interesting to a file that they may or may not want to access in the future. As an ex-coder, you know, they use logs a lot to be able to go back and potentially decode why something happened in the system or in your code so you can actually correct it. And these two brilliant individuals figured out when no one else did, there's potentially a lot of gold in this very chaotic, non-organizable, it's a, a snowflake or a fingerprint. Every log has its own unique characteristics. There could be value in that if you could find a way to collect it. Unique innovation that we that these guys created, that, that the initial architecture surrounded, was the world of data has always supposed, back hundreds and hundreds of years, even before computing, that you have to structure the data. You've got to organize it. It's got to have semantical relevance. It's got to be hierarchical. It's got to be in a format that humans can operate. And the challenge with this form of data is it is completely random. So the uniqueness was not only, hey, should we pay attention to this as our value, but to pay attention to it, you have to invent something that for some reason we're still the only people that have invented, which is a repository uh, to store it that doesn't demand any type of structure from the data. It takes this random, chaotic, often conceived of as garbage-filled data in all of its glory, captures it all and only present structure when you are playing with it and interacting with it, because as humans, we need structure, we need semantics. But the core is literally completely unstructured for a reason. It's the source is non-manageable. And I think this is an interesting segue to talk about machine intelligence, because this is a topic that is intimidating for a lot of people right now. However, the examples you just mentioned are great examples of machines coming to our aid and doing what we're horrible at. We're not good with dealing with things that are unstructured, whereas machines can take that complexity and reduce it to insights, structured insights for us. How do you think about machine learning and the explosion of big data? We started with singularity of language. There's a lot of fear with things that we don't understand Mm -hmm. yet. And you go back to many major inventions, the invention of gunpowder and fireworks, the invention of any of the industrial steam-driven engines, the invention of automobiles. And there was forecasting that it would eradicate humans and life would be over as we know it. It turns out cars are pretty incredible. Absolutely. It did did a lot of good. And then it's one of the largest sources of death also for humans. So there's always a yin and yang on on all these. Um, When I think about machine learning and eventually if we ever get to something like artificial intelligence, I am sure that there'll be negative ramifications of those, but I'm also equally sure, based on everything we've seen in the past, if that's a decent guide, that there's going to be some brilliant positive ramifications and it's never one without the other. I tend to be more optimistic, which is probably why I'm in this crazy industry and I've (laughs) founded a company and you've got to be a little bit optimistic 
to go into those types of jobs. And I view the movements that we're driving with machine learning and this huge amassing of data as um, having insane amounts of positive opportunity. And then there's got to be guardrails in place to make sure that the potential for massive negative is mitigated as much as possible. And I think this is uh, really exciting because a lot of folks are talking about the fears around artificial general intelligence, and they're talking about the importance of democratizing AI. However, what a lot of people aren't talking about is the democratization of big data and garnering insights from big data. Why is the democratization of big data almost more important than worrying about AGI at this point? The only way that any type of machine learning routine works is against large samples of data. And sure. the more data you throw at a problem, often the better the outcome will be, not not always. And Without really being fully aware, I think a lot of us have allowed, I'm not sure if they're monopolies, but a handful of organizations to take over a huge swath of data. Um, and we can see with GDPR and a bunch of other regulations that societies are trying to figure out how do we create a better balance between the two. The interesting thing for all of us as individuals is if we become a little bit more aware of what our actions are and how much data we're generating, and we marry that with different interesting regulations, there's huge economic opportunity for each one of us. And while I think data privacy is important. One of the things that I really passionately care about is how do we provide constructs for economic advantage around data? I want to have the opportunity to be aware of an economic exchange if it exists. Um, and right now, there's not a lot of regulation around that. For example, one of the stories I heard recently, you know, many of us are doing our saliva sampling for DNA feedback. So I pay a fee for the service, and, and one of the, the services out there is reselling the data they're gathering to pharmaceutical companies, both for potential advertising and for drug discovery. I'm not saying that's necessarily bad, other than it's it's actually my data. It's my DNA. And I think a more effective approach would be to create a brokerage. It says, all right, you paid us 100 bucks or 500 bucks, whatever the heck it is, for this feedback. Because of that, mm -hmm. we now have, you now have an opportunity to actually further get some economic gain from that data. And you know, we will do a 50-50 split with you or a 70-30 or a 30-70 split. Do you want to release your data to these other sources and participate in that economic gain? Or is it not worth it to you and you want to maintain your privacy? And I think people listening, they might remember stories like Henrietta Lacks and others who basically their genetic information was they found that it was sold or owned by a third party. That's a really big problem. What you're talking about is basically the creation of a market for that data and to maybe involve the general public in the idea that their data is valuable. It might not be as valuable as they think, but it could be valuable nonetheless, and they should be involved in that conversation, right? Absolutely. If you had asked me a decade ago, could you even get paid for distributing a video of you playing or a YouTube stream of you playing some Xbox game. <laughs> I would have said, I've, you know, who'd ever pay for that, much less people that are earning millions to tens of millions of dollars per year um, for that type of narration. So I, I think when we look forward, again, there's that fear of, oh my gosh, there's this new invention and it's going to make humans useless or it's going to upend my job. Just like I'm sure every farmer felt in 18, early 1800s as the Industrial Revolution was coming. And yet here we 
are in 2019 and unemployment in America is under 4%. We couldn't imagine what that looks like. Imagining the constructs for economic gain, we can get some arms around that. The video games example is fascinating because that's an example where many of us who have been fans of video games or computers in the past remember maybe, at least I'm speaking about myself, adults or authority figures saying you're going to rot your brain, you're going to destroy your ambition and things like that by playing video games. However, now we have the emergence of markets and esports and esports players are some of the most healthy video game players in the world. So before that event horizon or whatever you want to call it, we didn't see a way for people to monetize their passions in a, in a healthy way, but now they're doing it. This is really exciting. Could you talk maybe about dark data as it relates to sports, entertainment, and esports? How could this better serve us or how could it create more inspiring stories? Going back to the everything is becoming digitized and as anything becomes digitized, it's now having a conversation or has the capability of a conversation. That certainly applies to sports. There's all kinds of different exciting and interesting IoT experiments going on with everything from cleats and shoes that you can buy today, obviously all the gadgets that we wear to give feedback on heart rate and others, to helmets, the data exists and you can gather a whole series of different data streams and begin to correlate it. It can give tons of insights um, and everything from your own performance characteristics to higher safety capability and then all the derivative elements. Sure. Because it sounds like fans benefit and then also players and the folks in the arena benefit from better safety. I think data is one of the reasons now we're having a conversation about traumatic brain injury and things like that in sports that a decade ago, not many folks were talking about. So how can people listening think about utilizing their data and how can they get involved in the larger conversation around democratizing data? Become a little bit more aware of your daily activities. When are you interacting with different systems or collecting data? And what do you have around you that's actually collecting data as well? And take a little bit more time to you know, read the different agreements that come with all the different items that we're increasingly putting into our homes and, and across our bodies. In addition to that, I think all of us, an interesting feedback element of this survey that we did that identified dark data is the vast majority of respondents recognize that we're going into an ML and AI world where understanding of data and understanding of um, manipulation of data was going to be critical to future jobs. And yet the vast majority had no interest in learning those skills, which was amazing to me. You're completely aware that this is both an opportunity and a threat, but your desire to dive in and actually be part of that change is low. I just, I'm not interested in learning. I think we all need to become practitioners of manipulating data. I can see it through my iPhone utilization, all the different apps that I have. I'm much more data conversant than I probably was five or 10 years ago because I have so many different data sources. I'm trying to combine the different data sources and infer patterns. And conversely, as an industry, it's up to all of us to lower the bar on how you can create insights and ultimately create actions from those insights around data sets and any type of machine learning or algorithms that are attached to those data sets. So are there any favorite examples you have of actionable insights that teams have generated from large data sets, whether it's using the Splunk product or any others? In every walk of life we have, going back to some of the use cases that we get excited talking about, and I may have talked about the Global Emancipation Network. Global Emancipation Network is an excellent thing to revisit because I think that that story is something that's near and dear to so many people. It's a topic that a lot of listeners care about. They want to get involved. So that would be a great story to start with. Global Emancipation Network focuses on the uh, human trafficking, the abuses around human trafficking. Um, and it is a really difficult data problem to solve because there are 
thousands of different data repositories that are owned by different entities, um, different police forces and different nonprofits, that if you could find a way to actually gather either the proprietary data or the public-facing data and begin to do correlations, there's incredible insights across that data. And over a three-year time period, using Splunk and a host of other technologies, Global Emancipation Network has been able to make a significant dent in both identifying victims of human trafficking and the perpetrators and starting to actually turn the tide in a positive direction just by being curious enough to begin to ask questions of what would it take to solve a problem like this? That's one of the biggest roadblocks in front of most of us is how do you drive enough curiosity? If you're right. willing to ask the question and you're willing to actually follow the thread far enough, you can almost always get to a set of answers. By following that thread too, we get to an exciting place because we're basically working together as a public and private individuals to preempt a lot of the challenges that law enforcement and that society has to pay down the road, the horrible costs of human trafficking, we can start to preempt those things. So this is the, you know, for the first time in history, we've been able to stop crimes and stop horrible things before they occur, or at least stop them while they're in the process of occurring. How can dark data and big data be used to empower law enforcement or maybe stop some of the challenges that they otherwise might have to face? The way that we look at this universe of data is this constant interplay between four core pillars of activity, with one of those being the predictive analytics piece. So I try to get in front of something that's going to happen. But why there's four is you need a, an iterative cycle and learning across all four. The first one that we talk about is an investigative pillar. Something has gone wrong. Life is unexpected. It's filled with random events. Do you have the data at your disposal to actually dig through to understand what went wrong? What was the root cause? That's a, a critical pillar by itself. Now you're only good at investigating. That's nice, but what do you do to actually monitor for something? If you understand root cause, you can probably create a set of events, metrics, key performance indicators that if they're sequenced in the right way with the right alerts and thresholds, it can be a rapid indicator that allows you to rapidly begin an investigation or stop something from happening. Those two are great. What if you actually can get in front of it? What if you have enough data and enough analytical capability and machine learning that you can predict something before it happens? And then finally, for uh, the fourth pillar and what you're actually looking for is how do you act? Given that investigations, monitoring, and analytics all float decisions or insights to the surface, turning those decisions or insights into rapid closure, sometimes through collaborative action, sometimes through automation orchestration, is the fourth pillar. The interesting point is those can happen in any sequence and looking at the results of any can make the others much more effective and significant and enhance the capability. At Splunk, we started with an investigative capability going back to this non-structured index that allowed random chaotic data to go in unstructured so you could play with it and investigate it and find the insight. But those insights turn into monitoring activities. And those monitoring activities turn into predictive activities. But again, predictions aren't always right. Monitors don't always catch everything. So it's a really fun, organic evolutionary and kind of chaotic process. But it sounds like one that would get easier over time as your team or organization begins to practice it or begins to almost like a flywheel, right? As you begin to involve everyone in it, it should get easier over time though, right? It should build. Right. Going back to your law enforcement example, and there's a lot of monitors that we have. We can put more out there. Splunk and other data technologies are being used on everything from monitoring water quality to the healthy electric grid are not what you normally assume as far as police activities. You'd like to be predictive on it. 
You'd also like to have an effective investigative repository and then share that data as much as possible across the huge number of silos that exist in between industry and different public entities that are out to try and help us and, and do the right thing. When you talk about these topics with CISOs, CTOs, or CIOs, or other CEOs, do you find that they view this process and Splunk and all these uh, philosophies as an insurance, as uh, an empowerment tool? How do they generally talk about this when they encounter it for the first time or maybe after the first three months after a deployment? We're definitely on a journey as a species on data, the different formats, how do we master it? And Splunk is as well. I think we've got a lot of work to do within the world at large and our, our different potential corporations and buyers on helping them understand who are we and what do we do. What I've found for customers, we tend to usually start with an investigative um, set of use cases, going back to that natural origination of Splunk. But as they are running different investigations and realizing this is something I should try and predict or monitor for, and they are using the more advanced elements of Splunk to get that work done, given that you can pair the right curiosity, education, and experimentation with those users and buyers, um, that is part of that viral approach with Splunk, is most data frameworks expect you to know what you're trying to do and then work backward. And Splunk as a design orientation as a company started with a, you're, you don't know what you're, it's an investigation. You don't know what you're going to do. Let's just gather data and play with the chaos in that investigative lake and then figure out what's interesting and what's not, and then begin that more deterministic and structured approach. And that's usually what turns out to be the very viral nature of Splunk is it's more organic and emergent, which I think fits more naturally with the day-to-day ins and outs of life and business. It definitely mirrors nature, biology, and evolution. Uh, new systems tend to emerge at the edge of chaos. So it also sounds like you're not going into these conversations or instances where you're creating an investigative lake with any assumptions, right? You're at least trying to encounter this with fresh eyes. So when you build an investigative lake, what does that mean and what is that process like? In an IT landscape of existing systems, stuff goes wrong all the time, despite hundreds of monitors and lots of predictive frameworks around. And the investigative lake was put in place from Splunk to gather that chaotic, non-organized data from all those systems to allow you to, when the monitors have failed and when the predictive routines were not accurate, to allow you to play with that data to see if you could figure out, because this was an unexpected error, the app is down and we can't figure out why, to dig through all that data to find root cause. That investigative lake, because it's non-structured, um, and it started out with an IT, could largely be applied to cybersecurity right. because they're generally trying to figure out potential breaches and threats on an IT landscape, given that's digital. But it turns out it can be applied to international wire fraud, given that it goes across networks or automatic teller machine health or service routing for uh, entities that are, have any type of RFID capability or signaling capability. Or, so that investigative diagnosis becomes very, very fluid across an organization. The less fluid pieces are now I want to monitor for something because now you're casting data in the form of metrics or events or KPIs, where now I want to predict something because now you're casting data in the form of some type of multidimensional data model or OLAP framework so that you can actually run ML routines against it. Again, that combination of a very fluid organic investigative lake with less fluid, but able to change. Uh, monitoring and analytics is key, especially if you pair it with a orchestration collaboration automation framework that can take any of those outputs and then 
collapse the time to execution or doing. And it sounds like just reducing the response time that CISOs have for a threat is, I guess, at the forefront of every CISO's mind right now, would you say? For me, the Maslow's lowest rung of the hierarchy is you better be able to dig through and understand root cause. Most human beings, I think, will give us all a hall pass on stuff goes wrong and you can't stop everything from going wrong. But not knowing why it went wrong and not knowing how you're going to prevent in the future, that's a pretty bad thing. For me, as CEO of the company and for most of my interactions with customers is please start with that investigative lake. Make mm. sure that for elements that are digitized and you think are critical to your business, that you're gathering all the data that could be relevant in an investigation and preserving it in whatever format as cheaply or non-cheaply, low grade storage or not, so you have access to it. So that when something, God forbid, doesn't go wrong, but it likely will, you can actually determine root cause. I would advocate creating monitoring and analytics routines from the reality of what you're finding in the past as mm -hmm. something you want to stop from repeating, but marry it with the monitoring and the analytics and the action pillar. But please don't skimp on that investigative piece. Very good reminder. So we always don't know what we don't know. And sometimes what we don't know can be the biggest threat. Let's shift gears and talk a little bit about automobiles and transport. As we approach a time where, you know, recently Elon Musk on an interview said that Tesla would reach level five later this year. What is level five, first of all, and how do we get there safely and quickly? Um, and by level five, I, I think you mean fully autonomous, safe fully autonomous, autonomous vehicles. vehicles. I wish I were more of an expert on that. My observation of systems and the emergence of the world around us is that I, I think that we are still a ways away. It'd be wonderful if we got to autonomous driving more quickly. It will, I think, be both a negative. There'll be a bunch of drivers that lose their jobs and a positive given the risks and costs associated with transportation both go in the, in the positive direction. It ultimately is, like many other things, a data problem and machine learning and compute problem all combined together. And uh, I think provides a super exciting potential future. How do you think about data visualization? Because we're talking about things that are enormously complex. For the person who's listening and says, I can't handle any more complexity right now, is it possible to simplify the data visualization process of this? When I think about um, this overwhelming flow of data um, and the real estate that we typically have to evaluate data, there's there's a collision. Infinite possibility and opportunity to be able to parse data, understand data, and act on data, but it still needs to be formatted in a way that we can actually act and react. We've been experimenting with virtual reality as something that needs to be applied to this data paradigm. I love some of the demos that we've crafted, where when I think about the almost infinite amount of data that a oil refinery has at its disposal or a oil exploration field would have, how do you even begin to manage the real estate and the consumption of all that data? And a lot like Minority Report with effective VR and this great new connected experiences platform we have, you now have basically a full 360 landscape to be able to collect different elements of data in different relations and see how they tie together and not be limited to a classic dashboard metaphor, which is you know just the dashboard of my car or a 2D screen in front of me. I think it's got amazing potential. We'll still be gated by our ability to consume effectively. Does that bring up the challenge then with VR adoption in the enterprise or what's the biggest hurdle there towards visualizing data in a better way? I think we're on the path. So much of VR that we all see and get to play with is much more in gaming and consumer and recreational, but the impact, and we've seen the medical field and you know, so many different areas for true business um, enhancement and advancement, both augmented reality and virtual reality, I think is 
we'll probably see a bigger impact in our lives from that than we will from some of the consumer um, interfaces. And when it comes to augmented reality in the enterprise, Kevin Kelly recently wrote an editorial for Wired about AR and mirror world, as he calls it. How can we start to think about augmented reality or mixed reality? And how could that help us uh, solve our big data challenges. The flexibility that you get with this digital world, there's a physical world that's real, that we just tangible that we touch, but with everything now talking, signaling, there's multiple different new dimensions that every physical object can occupy. And that mirror world, I think, is a you know, really interesting element of if I've got any environment that I'm working with, given that there are many different dimensions I want to approach that landscape environment with, how do I see those different dimensions? How do I interact with and operate against those different dimensions. And we're only going to be limited by, again, the compute and data and interactive and visual real estate that that's in front of us. What future possibilities do you see on the horizon for big data, machine learning, and Splunk at large? Are there any opportunities that you're excited about sharing that you feel are maybe they're coming at us quickly, more quickly than we can anticipate? Or are there any that are here that we don't know about yet or that the larger public might not have heard about yet? Yeah, I think we're still at the earliest days right now of true ML, big data driven insights. Within the Splunk immediately applied portfolio, we've got an open framework where any of our customers can lower the bar to interoperating with whatever data they're gathering um, and applying different ML algos and perspectives on that data. Um, for the products, the solutions that we ship, we've been focusing on how do we try and get predictive and in front of security and developer and IT issues, given those being our core markets. And the degree of increasing accuracy of not just being accurately alerted to problems that are occurring, but the accurate predictions of problems that might occur in the future is getting pretty profound um, right now. We've been um, hard at work at both data sets and ML routines and, and things like IT landscapes for over two years now, and more of the AI ops category. I, I think we're seeing some big impact with customers that are early adopters of those technologies and capabilities. And when you travel broadly or when you travel to Europe or Asia, are there any trends or insights that you're seeing in those markets that those of us who are based in the West might not be privy to yet? Every country I go to has different angles that they're experimenting with. Distributed personalized low-cost finance is obviously one of those hot topics across India that's probably much more aggressive there than it is in, in the United States. The rapid transfer of information, given what a flat world it is and how, for now at least, there's not huge borders around information, information flow, is part of the exciting um, element of how free flow of data turned into different doing and outcomes. It just has a exponential beneficial cadence. Is it a stretch to say that big data or machine learning and analysis could help emerging economies leapfrog? Like in the case of India, is it possible to help them leapfrog over legacy systems to new ones more easily? Sure. Some of the countries that did not invest in landlines and getting the huge advantage of cell and satellite-based communications, it's definitely creating a whole new set of opportunity for all humans that have enough curiosity and enough motivation to pay attention and to dive in. And we talked earlier about healthcare and the applications for this in medicine. Could you speak maybe about the hand-washing example and why it's important for us to continue to have this conversation? Because this is a, an important topic that Semmelweis brought up 150 years ago or so that still hasn't been fully solved. 
when I think about the general hospital um, scenario set, there is so much dark data in hospitals right now. I think the healthcare industry has been actually pretty good about making sure that given that most of the artifacts in a hospital room are electronic, that most of those can communicate something about themselves. But the effective collection of that information and then the correlation and action that information is something that's still a big opportunity for hospitals. The hand-washing example, you didn't need automation and data collection. You just need a lot of observation to begin to tie the cleanliness rigor and the spread of disease within hospitals. And there's two elements to this data problem, which is one under actually gathering data and making your prediction um, and then changing human behavior. And so 150 years later, doctors and nurses still are probably not as aggressive on hand washing and cleanliness. Um, And there's a constant uh, human change management angle to make sure that we listen to the data and actually change our behaviors. I think the average doctor or general care practitioner sees 26 patients a day. So it's not something we can fault them for because with that level of workload every single day, I think that's where machines need to come in and remind us of the things that we know we should be doing. Let's segue and talk some about the human genome projects, a project that would not have been possible without more compute and better technology and Moore's law. Why do you like this project so much and what can everyone learn from it? Ultimately, the human genome and where we're going as far as our DNA makeup is also just a data problem. And that is, you know, if we go back to the 1980s and 90s when we first started manual sequencing and then to see the um, explosion as we became much more aggressive at applying technology to it. Um, it's been incredible, the gains that have occurred in just the past five, six, seven years as we've opened up the, the tech aperture. Someone like Yuval Harari has got some interesting predictions um, with his post-Sapiens books on the extinction of human beings. And he predicts that it says happening at a very rapid pace. And again, on the um, sensationalist piece, that means, oh, you know, all of us are going to disappear. And that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is if you took a fingerprint of the typical genome today or 10 years ago and then compared it with what that genome will look like in 50 years, there's going to be such a derivative from where we started that it will be broader than the chimpanzee to existing homo sapiens derivative that exists today. And it goes back to it's becoming available to us. And if you have the opportunity to augment the genome to eradicate diseases or to enhance different traits you want to enhance, it's going to be almost impossible for us, I think, to not dive into those waters. And on the scared and happy specter, you just, some of that will turn out to be disastrous experimentation and some of it will be absolutely brilliant. It'd be wonderful to eradicate Alzheimer's and you know, so many of the huge debilitating diseases that if we can understand the core genetic cause and then patch and augment the DNA strands would be of massive consequence to the quality of life. And you mentioned Yuval, and many of you listeners are familiar with Sapiens. However, not many folks, or maybe many of our listeners, don't want to speak for them, have read his post-Sapiens books. What did you pick up from his post-Sapiens books? And are there any favorite stories or insights that you gained from them? Depending on your attitude in reading the books, I actually view him as just a very lucid observer, but he is accused by many of being a huge pessimist. And I don't read Homo Deus and, and the 21st lessons of the 21st century that way at all. I think it's very grounded in observation and fact. And there's an, in every one of his, here's where I could see the future right. going. There is that to side of coin where there's huge potential negative and abuse and there's huge potential positive. And in most cases, it's a blend of the two with a little bit more uh, lowered on the optimistic and positive side because I think human beings tend to be pretty adaptive and, and resilient. 
if those of you that have not had a chance to just even listen to his YouTube interviews on his works, he is such a thoughtful and lucid thinker that I encourage everybody to do that. You mentioned you're an optimist earlier. Do you find yourself oscillating between optimism and pessimism sometimes? And when you do find yourself getting, if you do, pessimistic about our technological future, how do you go about getting back into that optimistic place? I have worked hard to try and get my judgment and my ego slightly lower. It's so hard for all of us. We're taught from a young age to show our work and to be proud of our work and to, um, you know, there's so much emphasis on being right about different things. And what I've seen over and over is there are so many paths to any answer. And for all of our um, intelligence and creativity, we wind up being wrong on outcomes far more often than we're right. So what I have observed reading history and through my 50 plus years of life is things tend to work themselves out. And there are certainly dark periods where it's looking pretty depressing. Um, and then we figure out the next solution and pull ourselves back out of whatever hole we've gotten ourselves into. The one thing I believe is you can't go backward and you can't stand still. There's the illusion sure. of being able to do both. The universe from everything we can tell is expanding at an expanding rate. We're just part of that universe. Every invention that comes is going to play itself out. Um, so if you are not part of the program, become part of the program. Like go with it. And if you're scared of something, get involved and then figure, figure out how you can steer it in a direction that makes you a little bit less scared or hopefully becomes more beneficial to people around you. And I think even if your voice is one that's pessimistic, it's a voice that we need in this conversation. Because if I think back to my time in the military, it was often my colleagues and teammates who were the most pessimistic and paranoid that kept us alive and out of harm's way and danger. So I think that that's a fun thing where we are at a place, I think, where as a species, we can tolerate, even welcome and enjoy many diverse voices in the conversation. So how do you think about diversity as an organization? As a company, we care a lot about diversity for a whole host of reasons, including we think that it makes us a much more effective and successful company, that the more perspectives you bring to the table and the, the higher variety of those perspectives, then you do wind up with a more 360 and multifaceted discussion. And through that, you usually wind up with a better answer. We've been publishing diversity stats for the past two years. Um, we continue to, to set more and more progression bars for ourselves um, as we open the aperture on diversity overall. We started with gender. We've moved to underrepresented minorities. Where we are, and certainly and what I watch in America right now, but I think it's happening around the world, is there's this real dichotomy on different topics. People can jump up and down about diversity and be the most enlightened people with that topic. We've got to be open to color and gender and sexual preference, but then not be willing or open to having a dialogue with people who disagree with you. And that polarization, I think, is just as bad of a non-diverse orientation as those other elements. If we're not able and willing to sit down with people that have highly divergent views with us and have a dialogue and listen, then we will be much poorer as a species. It's really important to listen to that full spectrum. And that's part of why I think that diversity agenda is such an important agenda for certainly for our company, but I think for most companies out there. Doug, this is round two coming to a close. Thanks so much for coming back on. It was a pleasure to have you here. Hopefully we get you on for round three at some point. Thank you. Mission Daily and all of our podcasts are created with love by our team at mission.org. We own and operate a network of podcasts and a brand and story studio designed to accelerate learning. Our clients include companies like Salesforce, they're a customer times five, Twilio, and Katera, who work with us because we produce results. 
To learn more and get our case studies, check out mission.org studios. If you're tired of media and news that promotes fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and if you want an antidote to all that chaos, you're at the right place. Subscribe here and to our daily newsletter at mission.org. Each morning, you'll get a newsletter that will help you start your morning and your day off right. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.